0: Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Guys, welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is listener and that's what you do. You listen and I'm sorry to break it to you, but there's no rant this week. Yeah, I know. I know it's what you look forward to. I know it's your favorite part of the podcast and hey, I don't blame you. A little pure Josh Peck. For the first, you know, seven and a half to 15 minutes of a podcast, what could be better? I'll answer that. Nada. But unfortunately, eh, listen, I've got a child. I'm very busy. And today, I have no time for a rant. Even though this is already going a bit long. Um, But don't you worry, next week, super long rant. So for, you know, the, the few out there who don't enjoy the rant... Who you know? I don't know. What else don't you enjoy? Joy? Do you not enjoy uh, Christmas presents? Um, you know, uh, videos of of once crippled orphans, uh, you know, suddenly being able to walk. I don't know. I don't know what gets you off. But not to worry, because next week it's going to be a long rant. It's going to be it's going to be gross, but also amazing. So, get excited for that. Um, On today's episode, Dr. Chris Ryan, a really interesting, smart guy. I, I so enjoy talking to him. He's written a New York Times bestseller, Sex at Dawn, which is sort of like the preeminent book on sort of sexuality and our evolution over, you know, I don't know, millions of years, probably. And, um, and he actually has a new book coming out uh, this fall called "Civilized to Death." He's a uh, he's a just a brilliant guy, and I think you'll really enjoy it. and And I love talking to him. So here's Chris. Here we are. Look at this.
1: Here we are
0: Come in on. Topanga. Are you are you here a lot in like in your Topanga house?
1: Uh, yeah, probably half the year, yeah you know, if, if you worked it all out, it's a home base. I, I never really, you know, when I think about home, it's my whole life, it's been like a base of operations, mm-hmm. you know, wherever I've lived, it's, it's been maybe half the year cause I've moved around a lot.
0: What inspired sort of the, the Scarlett Jovansson, like the, the sort of the, the nomadic life that you sort of embraced
1: well a long time ago uh when i just finished my phd so this is like 2002 or three maybe uh i was invited to present the research at a conference in vegas Mm. it remains the only time i've ever been to vegas really and it was august i remember and it was at the um, the biggest swingers convention in the world. What's called,
0: what's that called?
1: It was called the lifestyles convention, I think. Uh, Three thousand couples in one hotel.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. that's a lot of fucking.
1: That was a lot of fucking. Yeah. Anyway, so because my my research was on sexuality and prehistory, and um, and my I was in L.A. with my wife and my buddy, who's a surfer and a lifeguard said why don't you take my van you you know you guys can check out death valley and hang out a little bit yeah and he didn't need it and so we took his van and it was a piece of shit van it actually broke down in death valley and i remember we're on the highway the van stalls out i sort of coast down this exit ramp and pull off into the desert there and uh it was like four o'clock in the afternoon maybe five the sun was getting low And I didn't give a shit because I had cold beer and I had music and I had a bed. And it's like, yeah, we'll just hang out for a while. And there's a really beautiful view. Uh, And I remember thinking, like, this is really cool. Like, I really like this feeling of being, having everything I need with me, you know. And, And then we ended up, I did the thing in Vegas and then we took like a month. And we drove up through Nevada, across the uh sierras at yosemite and then came down you know along the coast and big Sur and all that we and it was just so nice and it reminded me of when i was young i used to backpack a lot travel all around the world you know with everything on my back it's the same thing but it's just like you know um, I'm older now and I have a little more money so it's, it's just like a slightly upgraded backpacking essentially and I loved it so much I thought if I ever live in North America I'm going to get a van and really hook it up and at the time I was living in Spain and um, so then when I came to North America I was like fuck yeah let's get a van let's do this and also at that point I had the podcast going so it fits into the podcast right? because um, I like to interview people people I meet randomly and, you know, hear their stories. So it's really nice to be able to go out in the van and just, you know, just live in it and, uh, go wherever my fancy takes me and be spontaneous. And, uh, I mean, I've met so many really interesting people just rolling around in the van. I mean, in theory, it's sort of like
0: you've minimized the creature comforts to its Sort of exactly what would be required. Like I, I interviewed this guy Brian Kelly, who's one of those. He he has that website, the Points guy.
1: Hmm. Oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, airline guy. Yes. Right. Right. Like
0: professional nomad. Right. And you know is constantly on Emirates flights with lay flat beds and at the sickest hotels around the world, and he's like. But no matter what, I could be at the St. Regis in Dubai, and that bed is not as comfortable as my bed at home. Right. And like, but for you, you're like, well, I got it. Like, it's right here. Wherever I want to take my bed, that's right. where I go.
1: It's so nice to be. you driving down a road, and you're like, yeah, you know, I'm feeling a little drowsy. I'm just gonna pull over right here and take a nap. Yeah. That's it. It's like there's nothing to it. I don't need to look for a motel. I don't need to pay anybody. And, and also, my van is the right size where you don't know if there's anyone in it. It's not like a camper where yes. there are obviously people sleeping in there. Which
0: is just a mobile target for yeah. every fucking horror movie. It's like, yeah. this is where you go to get murder <laughs> exactly. time, right?
1: Exactly. And cops.
0: Is that a fear? Like, whenever you've pulled over that someone might break in or...
1: Well, potentially. I, I mean, I've set up the van in a way that I can lock there's a section where to get at it you would have to break in and then have tools cut through metal and wood in order to get so i i that's a place where i can stash my laptop or whatever if i'm going to be away like if i'm going on a three-day camping trip or something i'll i'll put you know uh stuff in there there is a feeling of vulnerability and uh the first time i went out for the summer i go on like three month trips you know in the summers and the first time i was talking to a friend of mine who's a special forces you know tough guy and i said what do you think man should i have a a gun with me because i was going a woman was going to be with me and i'm thinking you know we're in the desert and some yahoos decide they're gonna you know rape her or something i have some responsibility and he's like, no, no guns. Forget about guns. Jesus. Yeah. He said, uh, <laughs> He said, take bear spray. I've heard that. Yeah. So I've got bear spray and like strategically located around the van. So different areas I, I have access. And also he said uh, a small high decibel, um, what's it called? Like a blast siren thing. Like a like push an air button, horn air almost. horn, yeah, yeah. He said that'll scare the shit out of anybody. You pull that out and just, yeah, and that, you know, it's psychologically, it just freaks people out.
0: Yeah, it's going to throw you off your game.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, and also, I mean, so I've been out two summers now. I mean, all backcountry Idaho, Montana, whatever. I haven't had any hassle at all. Nothing. So I, I think it's an, like most fears. I think it's uh, mostly illusion.
0: Is there one particular experience, and I'm sure you've had many, where in traveling in your van of all the experiences where there was like one time in particular where you said to yourself, this is why I did it. Like, this is exactly.
1: So many. Uh you know, just so many spots I've been in that I wouldn't have found otherwise, you know, random. Just, oh, what's down that road? Let's check. That. that looks cool. Let's go down there. And, you know, one thing leads to another. One experience, that you know, with the van that fed into the podcast that was really cool is, you know, as I'm traveling, I'm posting on social media. And so people see, like, oh, you're in Texas. And so I, I got a DM from a dude um who listens to my podcast and he's like hey i see you're in texas if you happen to get to a town called terlingua you should look up my buddy tony and i'm like whatever you know i get lots of these dms and so it just sort of faded into memory never heard of terlingua i'm cruising you know i was around austin or something at the time and then uh i was traveling with my wife and we wanted to go to this park big bend national park where i'd never been and uh, so we drive down there, and we get to the entrance. It's like 3 p.m., and the guy says, sorry, all the campgrounds are full. Um, you know, if you come back in the morning, I can hook you up, but today it's you're not going to be able to go in. And I was like, oh, fuck. All right, so what should we do? And he said, we'll go back to that. There's a little town down the road. Yeah. Spend the night there. It's called Terlingua, and then come back. I was like, Terlingua? Wait a minute, Terlingua? So we go to this town, it's a little dusty town, and I'm thinking, like, Terlingua sounds familiar, and I got I out, you know, there's so many platforms, I'm searching my Twitter DMs and my emails and my WhatsApps and all, around. and I found it, it was an Instagram DM, and so then I I uh, messaged this guy, Tony, I'm like, hey, you don't know me, but somebody thinks I should meet you, and I'm in Terlingua, and 10 minutes later, he's like, hey, yeah, come down, we're at the High Sierra, we're having beers, come join us. So we go down to this, this uh, bar, and there's a big table, like a dozen people sitting outside. Hey, come on over. And they got pitchers of beer. So we're drinking beer with them. And somebody says, uh, fuck, look how dirty this mug is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get sick. And someone else says, ah, oh, shut up. It's good for your microbiome. Right. right. And I'm like, oh, you guys know about microbiome? Because I've interviewed... Like doctors who do fecal transplants and, you know, like I, that's something I'm interested in is, is uh, like how we've sort of ruined things by being too clean. Mm. You know, it's, it's a theme in my, my writing and, and the podcast. So I'm going to impress these guys with my erudite knowledge about the microbiome, right? And I said, uh, I said, you know what? A few years ago, I read this article about a guy who was in Africa And he was uh, traveling with the Hadza hunter-gatherer people. Uh, He was studying them, an anthropologist, I think. And he took some shit from a Hadza person, Mm. mixed it up in water, in warm water, and blasted it up his ass.
0: Makeshift enema.
1: Yeah. Gave himself an enema of someone else's shit, right? Gross. A hunter-gatherer's shit. Because a hunter-gatherer's microbiome is far more complex than ours because of all the antibiotics in our food supply and all the cleaners we use and all that and so this guy studying microbiome wanted to see if he could get a hunter-gatherers microbiome going in his own gut so that's why he did this right so i've told this story before and everybody's always like oh that's the most disgusting oh that's crazy i can't believe it this guy i'm telling the story to points to the end of the table and says yeah that's him no way i say what I look down and the guy is smiling at me at the end of the Just looking at me, smiling. I was like, what do you mean that's him? And he goes, yeah, that was me. I'm a anthropologist. I spent half the year here in Terlingua, half in Tanzania, studying microbiome. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Anyway, we ended up staying there three days, hung out with these people, became really good friends, and you I recorded... Found your tribe. Yeah. These y- are your people. These are my, yeah, my shit tribe. Yeah. Yeah, so his name's Jeff Leach. I recorded a, a podcast with him the next day. He's one of the world's best known, most accomplished scientists in the study of microbiome, and never would have happened without the van. Right. Right? Not only being there, but being able to hang... And just chill out and, you know, oh, these are interesting people. Let's stay here for a few days.
0: I heard you, I, I think it might have been on Aubrey's podcast, say something to the effect of like, you know, we're we're all essentially in the zoo, but like, do we want to be in the San Diego Zoo or the Calcutta Zoo? Right. You know, and... Yeah. Uh, as close to our old habitat or like uh, within cement walls. So like to that extent, right, of the hunter-gatherer biome and, and how our guts are sort of ruined, is there, can we ever fix it? Is there, or is it just maybe making it slightly better? Like is there recovering from sort of what we've done to ourselves?
1: Yeah, yeah, there is. And one of the points that Jeff Leach made in our conversation is that the, internal environment your microbiome Mm. is a reflection of the external environment so by increasing diversity in the natural world outside us we're also affecting our health in a positive way so um as far as the microbiome goes, the best way to increase your internal health is to have a lot of contact with uh, a diverse external environment. So gardening is really good. You know, kids who are raised in a house with pets that go in and out of the house have much stronger microbiome than kids who don't have pets. Right. Um, because it brings a lot of the, the life from outside into the house. Kids who play in the dirt are much healthier than kids who, you know, everything's um, sanitized. Do you know uh, Ben Greenfield? I was with Ben in Hawaii two days ago. Really? Yeah, yeah.
0: He, uh, I got to interview him for the pod and we were chatting and we were sort of trading stories because both our wives had kids. Um, through c-section uh-huh. and he said it's really important you get your kid around germs immediately because he missed out on a layer of sort of probiotic microbiome yeah um, because he wasn't he didn't come out vaginally and so and that actually won't get to its its purest level or or its essential level till he's seven so make sure that he's like constantly around these sort of uh, hermetic stressors these little things that are going to allow him to to develop that
1: yeah in fact now there's a doctor named uh, maria dominguez bello i believe working in new york um and she works in the microbiome and she's been doing research where she takes kids who are born with c-section she takes a vaginal um, sample of the vaginal fluid and wipes it in the kid's nose and mouth to create that, uh, because what the kid's missing is the mother's microbiome as expressed through her vaginal fluids. When the kid's born vaginally, he gets all that in his eyes and nose and mouth, so it, it colonizes the, the uh, microbiome in the eye fluid and also in the digestive system. Right. And so she's trying to do that artificially or um, indirectly with kids who are born through C-section to get that same... Um, original microbiome colonizing action. Wow. Otherwise, the kid's picking up stuff from the room, from the sheets, from the other doctors, from the nurses, which may not be beneficial. It's really important to get that. Um, Because the mother's microbiome has exactly what's needed for that environment, right? Like if a kid's born to a woman in a tribe in the Amazon... Her microbiome is going to have the right stuff for that environment, mm. you know, as opposed to a, you know, an Inuit in Alaska or someone in a desert environment. they are all different kinds of microbes that the kid needs to be protected against.
0: This episode of Curious is brought to you by Parachute. Don't you love it when a plan comes together? Well, Parachute takes a holistic approach to the home, designing essentials with neutral tones that pair effortlessly and using materials and patterns that complement one another. Neutral tones. My wife is all about neutral tones. She loves it. You know what I mean? I try to come over there with like a strong fuchsia or perhaps just like a subtle Cylon. And she's like, I'm not having it. Let's keep it to whites and creams, my friend. Anyway, from the bedroom to the bath and living room, everything works together to give you a sense of wholeness. Visit ParachuteHome.com slash curious for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality, very comfortable home essentials. That's ParachuteHome.com slash curious. I'm I'm interested in in what we were talking about before to get your take on this if you have one about and i don't mean to generalize but like in our shit conversation like many of the women whom i've known and or been with throughout my life have had some issues around shitting Mm. like and most of them have been constipated and shitting has been an issue and I can only say these are the women I've known and not all women, but like, what do you think there's like, do you see like a through line or some sort of pattern amongst like women in shitting?
1: Yeah. I I mean, that's a big topic for me, actually. (laughs) Is it? I I did a, I did um, a workshop at the Esalen Institute years ago and I caused some consternation because I, uh, at the end of the first day, I gave them a homework assignment, which was: before you come in tomorrow, you know, when we meet tomorrow, if you take a shit, I want you to shit in your hand.
0: <laughs> Amazing.
1: And we're going to talk about this tomorrow. Yes. And about half of them did it, and half of them didn't. And I knew half of them wouldn't do it. I, you know, but I wanted to talk about why. Like, why is that weird for you? Why is that a big deal? Like, I lived in India for years at this point, um, if you added it all up. Spent a lot of time in India and Southeast Asia. And different cultures have different relationships to shit, right? A lot of cultures, you wipe your ass with your left hand and then you clean your hand. There's no toilet paper right and that's weird to get used to because we don't like touch our own asses right and we certainly don't touch our own shit and the first time you wipe your ass and you look at your hand and there's your shit on your hand that's a pretty weird moment right mm-hmm. but why is it weird it's coming out of your body it's like why so what i wanted to talk about in this workshop was like why is it weird what at what point does your shit become a foreign object it was in you. Now it's out of you, and suddenly it's a it's a disgusting foreign object, right? Right. So, there's our relationship with shit is really interesting to me, um, and I think it's interesting because it's uh, it resonates with our problem with being animals. Anything that reminds us reminds us of our animality is disturbing. Because Western civilization, in my opinion, is largely founded on the denial of death, that we're going to live forever, that we are separate from the animal world. And that goes right back to the Old Testament and the sort of foundations of Western civilization. And so anything that reminds us we're animals is also reminding us that we're going to die, just like all animals. And that's disturbing. So sex is disturbing, death is disturbing, shit is disturbing. Lots of um, these reminders of our commonality with other animals are, are disturbing. And as far as women go, we put women in this position where, you know, they're even less animal than men are. Sure. Right? Like men fart and grunt and, you know, we're, but women are not supposed to fart. They're not supposed to smell bad ever. You know, they're not... And yet, you know, they menstruate and they give birth and, you know, they do all these really deeply animal things. But we sort of hide all that behind this curtain of propriety. And uh, so, yeah, shitting is disturbing for a lot of women because it's animal-like. And I would argue that, I don't know if you want to comment on this or not, but I think women who have a hard time shitting probably also have a hard time coming. Hmm. I think there may be because of a blockage of um, acknowledging, you know, their bodies in a way. Yeah, I mean
0: I I, I don't know, but it, it's been interesting to see sort of like my my wife has two sisters and sort of like and then obviously like their extended friend group and it seems like for better or for worse and I don't know if it's just like the fact that we're you know quasi grown ups now and in our 30s so shit talks a little more acceptable but it seems as though they're all trading stories about like oh I found some sena tea or like some smooth move move laxative or like this is my new supplement it and it that's Rarely ever a conversation with me and my guy friends. Right. You know, we all just sort of suspect that we take our morning shade and move on.
1: Yeah, shit became a topic of conversation for me when I was traveling in Asia. Or traveling anywhere, really. Uh, You know, because you get, you know, in Mexico, you get Montezuma's Revenge or the Aztec Two-Step. That's that's my favorite word for it. Uh, And yeah, I remember in India... You know, coming to breakfast in this little guest house where I was staying, and someone I had never met was like, "Hey, how you doing? Is your shit green by any chance?" You know, right? <laughs> like, you know, because everyone's worried about yes. their health. Did I catch and, Is something? This normal? Do and, I have a yeah, worm? Yeah. And also, you see, I, an early realization I had traveling was that people who were worried about getting sick tended to be sick the most. I can't stand people. Who, when you see them, or if
0: they're sick, they're like, don't come near me, I'm sick. Or if you're sick, they're like, don't come. Like, they literally avoid you like the plague. I'm like, are you that fragile? Right. Like, you can't take a fucking head cold, like, or whatever. Like, go to the Schwitz, take some vitamin C, you'll be fine. Like, give me a break. Like, I get it. Like, you listen to someone like Howard Stern, who makes his money from his voice. He's like, I cannot get sick because there's no Howard Stern show without me. I can't take a day off. But but fuck that Howard Stern <laughs> how
1: much money do you need dude i mean really
0: well, it's deep it's so much deeper than that. I mean, at 65 and worth half a billion. He's I mean, he obviously
1: he can take a fucking day off, he, is what I'm saying.
0: Right, but he just can't like I'm so, he has 2 years left on his contract and I've been listening since I was 12. Oh. And I think about like 67, like is this it? Is this where you hang up your spurs and it I, he'll never stop.
1: No, he'll be the Larry King of, you yeah. know, 20 years from now. The Imis. Yeah.
0: Do you um Oh, I was, this might be like a random weird correlation, but I was thinking Perfect. about <laughs> what you were saying before. Do you think that the trend of pubic hair becoming more popular in pornography of the last couple of years is sort of us reverting slight or like accepting the animalistic side of us a little bit more that we we're not forcing women to feel the need to be as groomed and
1: hmm. well, or is it just a trend? yeah i I suspect it's just a trend. It's just that you know when when something becomes ubiquitous, then someone who goes against it is interesting. You sure. know what I mean? So it's like yeah, I mean, because you know I'm fifty seven uh, you know, yeah, when I was a kid and sort of getting into sex, you know, Bush was in.
0: Right. <laughs> you know, yeah.
1: Back in the bush days. But there
0: was no alternative, right? Like there had never been a time before that re- like before the 80s or yeah. whenever like when when people groomed that heavily.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, and I guess it I guess it was started by porn, right? Because it, you know, gave you better camera angles or I, I don't really I don't know, but it, it seemed weird to me. I remember I was probably in my 20s, early 30s, when it was suddenly like everybody looked like they were 12 years old. And it's like, that's kind of creepy, you it, know? It can be. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why you would want to look like you're prepubescent. That's not really sexy.
0: Is it like weirdly primordial, too, in the sense of like, right? It, it, originally, it was like people who were more Rubenesque were more attractive because they were eating a lot. There was, there mm. was a... Uh, an excess of riches in that way and now maybe like the person that's more groomed or gets more plastic surgery or can spend more time on self is coming from riches or a wealth like
1: yeah could be signifiers of wealth um, you know yeah as you as you said in different cultures and in different historical eras in western culture body shape with women signified different things so when there wasn't or and also like skin um tone you know like if you had tan skin it meant in the medieval period or even today in southeast asia if your skin is darker it means you work in the fields which means you're low class Mm. whereas you know all in like vietnam you can't buy um skin lotion that doesn't have whitener in it really yeah because everyone wants to look as white as possible and the women have these long gloves that go all the way past their elbows so when they're riding their motorbikes their arms won't get dark and they wear masks on their face to cover their face and big hats everyone's desperate to look as pale as possible in southeast asia it was an issue because i was traveling um, in vietnam with my wife who's um indian originally and so she got dark quite dark and everyone thought she was a whore mm. traveling with this white dude right and cuz she was so dark they thought she was a real low class whore and it like she was attacked three times physically like people slap her or punch her you know push her uh, off sofas and stuff like treat her like shit it was really heavy did you fuck him up uh no no, I wasn't there for one of them. One of them, uh, we were on a motorbike near um, Hoi An. We were riding through these rice fields, and we'd stopped at this crossroads, and there were some dudes sort of sitting around um, on you know little huts and stuff. And I was, and there were these little kids, and I was like laughing with these kids, and we were just sitting on the motorbike. And this adolescent boy ran up and punched her in the back and then ran off. And I was like, what the fuck? And she was crying like, oh. And I, my first instinct was to chase that kid. Sure. But I looked over and there were these men sitting there just watching. And I'm like, A, we're in Vietnam. Yeah. B, I chased that kid off into the fucking rice paddies. What am I? I'm leaving her sitting here. Yes. Right, you know, like what? Th- that's not the right move. Also, what am I going to do? Am I going to like beat up some fifteen-year-old kid?
0: No, I support. I support. If that. I
1: could catch him, which I, I probably couldn't.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then you're like in the middle of rice paddies. And I'm sure there's some crazy critters running around there. You're in
1: rice paddies in central Vietnam. An American middle-aged man beating up a Vietnamese kid. It's not a good look.
0: No, yeah. I, I I support
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> and how long have you been married? Uh, twenty years yeah 19 20 years
0: and was sort of well i guess what we'll I- i'd love to talk about first for any of the listeners who aren't f- as familiar with your work would you sort of give like just sort of a brief breakdown of sex at dawn or and sort of your life's work to that extent
1: uh as well, i mean
0: not to minimize it, to br- work or like i mean it <laughs> Most feels of my like
1: life, i don't work yeah I fair mean- uh, yeah, Sexodon let's let's start with sexodon. We'll get to life's work later. All right. Uh, yeah, the thesis of sexodon is that our species, if you look at the Homo sapiens as a primate, um, it's quite clear that we evolved, Similarly to chimpanzees and bonobos, which are our closest primate relatives, all of us are um, what scientists refer to as multiple mating, meaning that both males and females would typically mate with several different uh, individuals. In each menstrual cycle. Mm. And so essentially, the argument of sex at dawn is that we are not by nature a monogamous species. We're told that we are. Religions and governments and school educational systems all telling us, like, you know, monogamy, we're this monogamous species where, you know, men trade protection and meat for fidelity from females and this is the way it's always been so there's this whole scenario of what kind of animal homo sapiens is that we're told by mainstream science that's inaccurate in fact we're multiple mating species and uh, so sexodon goes through the evidence for that it doesn't really talk about what to do uh you know how to deal with that situation but and that's very purposeful
0: you've talked about right
1: yeah because it's not a you know casilda and i when we were writing the book were very clear that we weren't giving anyone advice because we didn't know what to do about the truth but but it's important that people understand that the the fact that you love your partner doesn't mean you're gonna stop being attracted to other people and so, because people have that um, sort of drilled into their heads, they feel that there's something wrong with them, that they're attracted to other people, that this, particularly women, I think, feel very um, guilty about that. And it's a shameful secret that, fuck, I love my husband, but I really would love to bone my tennis teacher, you know? Sure. And... Fill
0: wh- in the break room.
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so what in, in Sex at Dawn, all we tried to do is say, no, that's natural. Like, look, here's the evidence. That's mm-hmm. natural. Of course you want to fuck your tennis teacher or whatever. Uh, th- whether you do or not is totally up to you. We have the capacity to make decisions and choose how we're going to live our lives. But the fact that you have that appetite is totally understandable if you understand the evolution of our species.
0: So in that sense, is it, is its greatest gift or sort of insight into allowing people to let go of the self judgment of that critical inner voice and not necessarily to say like, you don't have to practice these tenants because it's specific unto you. Just, you don't like awareness is sort of the first step. Like just, you don't have to feel bad about the fact that you have these, these impulses.
1: Right. Exactly. The, the, the sort of parallel I draws to vegetarianism, right? Monogamy is like vegetarianism. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact there's a lot right with it. It's, yes. It can be much healthier, it can be ethical, it can you know, there are all these advantages to it. But it's not easy. And the fact that you decide you're going to be a vegetarian, which is like saying I'm going to marry you and only fuck you the rest of my life. That's a decision you're making. That doesn't mean that bacon is going to stop smelling good shit. Right? So, okay, you're a vegetarian. Don't beat yourself up because that bacon smells good. Right? Mm -hmm. So similarly, you're monogamous. Congratulations. Don't beat yourself up because sometimes you, you know, fantasize about other partners. That's the nature of the species. We're omnivorous, so that bacon is always going to smell good. Or if you're not into bacon, you know, brisket or whatever, whatever yeah. the fuck you're into, I if there's a reason a short it smells rib, good. Perhaps. Short ribs, like burgers, whatever. Fuck, there's
0: even pig and gummy bears, or there's gelatin. Yeah, yeah. So there's which pig made and gummy, from gummy bones, bear. right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Is there um, a, sort of and. I just thought about this as I was driving over here, and it probably is not the the right comparison. But I think about, like, I recently had my wisdom teeth removed a few years ago. And when they were doing the CAT scan of my face, they said, oh, you only have three. And I said, I only have three wisdom teeth. And they said, yeah, it's sort of an evolutionary sort of thing where some people have six, some people have none. But over time, we're seeing that people are having less and less wisdom teeth because we don't need them. So mm. humans are actually slowly over time getting rid of them because of our you know the way in which we're consuming food and how we we ingest it, and so like to that point as far as like monogamy goes, is it are we just slow like is there um, sort of a, a a point of that we're we're slowly moving in this direction like evolutionarily it serves us whereas maybe. You know, thousands of years ago it didn't, but over time it, it is the better thing, or or not.
1: Well, uh, wow, there's a lot packed into that. First of all, evolution doesn't favor the better thing. It only favors that which confers either a mating advantage or a survival advantage. And only a survival advantage up to... Uh, mating age so um evolution evolutionary mechanisms are a lot more complicated than most people think it the more you get into it the more you see it's really uh, people oversimplify evolution a lot um you know for example that wisdom teeth situation i don't know how evolution would be removing wisdom teeth. That doesn't make any sense at all. How come? Well, because you're not dying as a child because you have wisdom teeth. Wisdom teeth don't even come in until you're 30. But they do pose an issue, right? Because a
0: lot of people, they're impacted, or like for me, they were hard to brush, so they were like rotting out of
1: my head. Right, but you're not dying or having fewer children because of wisdom teeth.
0: Unless they they come in early and they kill you early because they're impacted? How often
1: does that happen?
0: Well, we don't know, right? Because we yeah. intervene early.
1: Right. But for evolution, to for, for natural selection to occur, you'd have to die. There'd sure. have to be people dying from it and then people who don't have wisdom teeth would have more kids and it would take many generations for that to have an effect on the population. What's actually happening, I suspect, is that um, the jawbones... Grow in children uh, in response to how hard they chew. So children who are chewing like hunter-gatherer children who are chewing like meat and chewing bones and things like that, their jaw bones will actually grow longer, Mm. and so they don't have impacted wisdom teeth because there's space on the jaw bone for all their teeth. Whereas Western kids who eat soft food and don't have any sort of challenge while they're jaws are growing their jaw gro- jaw bones actually are shorter and this happens not through evolution this happens because of the body responding to the conditions and then we have the the impacted teeth because our jaw bones aren't as long so I I don't know I mean that's that's getting into the weeds of evolutionary theory there but I suspect that's probably what's going on with the wisdom teeth as far as monogamy goes and social um social uh, conventions, uh, society and culture evolves or changes far faster than any evolutionary process can keep up with. So, you know, monogamy has been popular for a few thousand years in Western society, arguably, but monogamy only refers to women until the 50s, the 1950s. Until the 1950s, what we meant by monogamy was that a woman didn't fuck anyone but her husband. Her husband was fucking whoever the fuck he wanted. Um, Like, you know, look at uh, Roman times. Men were having sex with concubines and slaves and prostitutes. That was part of monogamy. That was acceptable behavior. It's the woman's behavior that was uh, subject to the rules of monogamy. And, you know, Dan Savage, you know who he is, the sex columnist? uh, He makes a great point where he points out that in the 1950s, because of women's rising status, um, you know, in American society, there was this crisis where women started demanding that men be subjected to the same rules that they had been following. And so there was this decision to be made in American society where either men have to actually be monogamous too, sexually, or women get released from these, you know, expectations, unrealistic expectations, and the society chose, okay, we're going to impose the same rules on men. Mm. That's been a disaster because men aren't good at following these rules, and, or, or they're not as good at keeping secrets, maybe. Um,
0: is there, is there like a, you know, so much of, of religion and, and culture, we, we sort of agree on the idea that like, through some form of, in quotes, deprivation, um, enlightenment can be achieved, right? Mm. So like fasting or what have you, like right. taking away the, the creature comforts, the pleasures of this world to, to sort of, um, supersede those things. And so like it, monogamy in that respect of taking away that that primordial desire to to be with multiple people, to, are you then able to achieve levels of intimacy that perhaps you wouldn't if if you were indulging those things?
1: Yeah, possibly. Um and that that's a very thoughtful question and I think it's a legitimate understanding of monogamy it's also a legitimate understanding of celibacy for that matter Um, there are definitely ways that you can structure your life that bring more focus where you want it Mm. Um, but similarly there are opposite traditions there are traditions in some of the buddhist lineages of seeking enlightenment by immersing oneself in sex and alcohol and music and all these things, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh shit! That's my lineage. I've
0: been missing out. <laughs> what have I been doing being sober eleven years?
1: <laughs> ah. Yeah. I I had a funny moment in my twenties. I um I'd been in India. And, you know, so I sort of spent my twenties adventuring. That was my thing, you know. And um I went to paris and was visiting with my best buddy there who i'd known since i was 15 and he's very different from me he's super disciplined speaks a bunch of languages plays all these musical instruments you know went to cornell and engineering and you know good job and like very focused applied guy and we were hanging out and he said you know chris i finally figured you out i said what's that he said he said you're like a monk you're searching you're you're searching for transcendence and and some kind of enlightenment but a monk does it by renouncing the temptations of life and you do it by immersing yourself in the temptations cuz i'd been like taking lots of psychedelics and lots of sex and you know just like i just wanted experience you know yes and and it he was right it's like i didn't want it just to have fun i wanted it to because i was learning and i felt like the more countries i visited the more women i got to know the these different drug experiences the more states of consciousness i could experience the more i was learning about myself and the universe and that's really what i was after you know
0: and do you think and does your um sort of research sort of take into account the emotionality of it because I remember early on before I met my wife, like for better or for worse, and i I sort of prided myself on what I thought to be as gentlemanly of a scoundrel as possible, like that I wanted to have many experiences with many different people, but inevitably, if I was very clear from from the beginning like this is kind of all I'm interested in, and if you are too, l- great, let's have fun. Mm. But it seemed like, for better or for worse, as soon as we slept together, there was some um, uh, wreckage isn't the word, but like collateral damage, that something had changed for the person I was sleeping with. Just, I, I, yeah, it was like this intrinsic thing that I couldn't quite put my my finger on, but I, I would just equate it to, um, emotionally, there was a tie that happened that didn't happen for me. Mm. Um and and it almost – I remember once uh, a buddy of mine who's like a, a, a sort of apostle, a guy who I look up to, said, you know, eventually you're going to have to start making the decision for them in the sense of you might – even though for you, you feel like you've done everything that you're responsible to do, you might have to abstain so that you don't bring emotional trauma to this person who really – might be saying they're okay with it, but your suspicion is is that they're not. So, like, yeah. does it take, does it, do you take into account that side of it too?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah? Yeah, I, I had actually last night, I was talking with someone about that exact experience, that conundrum of saying, well, she's an adult, she can make her own decisions, and yet she seems to be deciding to suffer mm. in order to be with me. And I don't want to be involved in someone else's suffering. You know, I don't want to be causing suffering, even if she says, no, no, it's worth it for me, right? It's this weird conundrum where you're like, right. wait, if, if I respect her autonomy, shouldn't I let her decide when to stay and when to go? And yet I feel bad about this. It's, it's a tough decision. Yeah. But yes, yeah, certainly it's always, uh, it's always a consideration. But, you know, those things are also, you know, one of the main themes of Sex at Dawn is that experiences that we presume to be instinctive or natural are very often cultural. And what I mean by that is you experience it on a very deep, intimate level in yourself, And it feels so deep that it's hard to believe that it doesn't come from your DNA or your cells or your deepest essence. Right. But when you examine it objectively, you find that it's actually uh, shaped by culture. So we started the book talking about food. And that's why I really wanted to make this point that, you know, we talked about um, you know, different cultures around the world eating, you know, grubs and insects and this, you know, brains and all these different things. How is it that, to me, it feels totally natural to eat a cow's ass muscle, but not its brain or its, you know, heart or its kidneys or whatever? Like, this is all so arbitrary. Mm. Um, but we assume that the things that we eat are food and the things that other people eat are weird and gross and disgusting, you know? And our emotional experiences, our sexual experiences can be the same way. There are cultures in which the women are running around seducing the men and the men are heartbroken about it, you know, where everything's flipped. There are cultures where, lots of cultures where people have sex and it's friendly, there's no presumption of a deeper relationship that's going to happen because of that sex. Mm. It's like, you know, dancing. Like, okay, you dance together, so what? And now you go home and, you know, you raise your children. It's it's not, there's no presumption that there's going to be some continuity or um, any kind of deeper intimacy that comes out of that shared experience. So that reaction to sex, which is totally... I'm not questioning its legitimacy or its depth, but I'm saying it's very much a cultural reaction. Sure. uh, Or mitigated by culture, anyway.
0: Well, it's interesting for me. Like, my wife comes from this Irish Catholic family, and, Mm. and I'm like this hot blooded Jew from New York. And it's just interesting to see culturally, like, obviously, and it's probably me having seen too many movies too but the sort of catholic stigma around sex and and what have you and then as far as judaism goes as far as i know it's like sex is a mitzvah it's a blessing yeah. like especially like especially to do it on shabbat on a friday night like mm. we always joke around like the most jewish kids are born or are conceived on a friday night because mm. it's like what a what a great way to sort of celebrate the the Shabbos, you know uh, the sabbath um but it, yeah, you're right. It's interesting to sort of see people's, um, what they're indoctrinated with at a young age. Is there like any culture specifically that you have found that is the closest to Sex at Dawn or like the most accepting of sort of the the tenets in the book?
1: Uh, well, of course, we draw from a lot of anthropological research on, on hunter-gatherer cultures and tribes in the Amazon. Yeah, and there are there are cultures all around the world that exemplify the principles that we talk about. Um the, for example, in the Amazon there are a bunch of different societies that believe that um a fetus is made of accumulated semen. So, they don't understand that one sex act can result in a baby. They mm. think that the baby sort of gets built up over time. Like twins,
0: that movie Twins. <laughs> oh,
1: I haven't seen it.
0: <laughs> well, you've seen it. Schwarzenegger and Danny no, DeVito. I haven't seen oh, it's it. A cl- it's basically Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito yeah. Yeah. come from the same egg. Oh, and really? like one is, yeah. It's, it's kind of your point, but it, <laughs> as you were saying. All right.
1: Uh,. Yeah, so so the a woman in the societies who wants you know obviously she wants to have a baby who's smart and funny and good looking and a good hunter or whatever, she'll fuck the funny guy and the good looking guy and the you know smart guy and the good hunter guy to get the essence of each of those guys into her baby, mm. and then each of the guys will consider himself the father or a father, so fatherhood is actually shared uh, among different men. In, this, in these societies. That's called partable paternity. Um, there's another society in China called the Mosuo uh, in southeastern China in the Himalayan foothills. Um, it's a very interesting society where uh, everyone is totally autonomous sexually. Um, people don't gossip about other people's sex lives. It's, you know, it's your business and nobody really gets into it. Um, and the girls, when they reach sexual maturity, they have their own bedroom in their mother's house. And the bedroom opens into a courtyard <clears throat> where you know the family functions happen. But there's also a door uh, to the street. And so she can have different men come in and spend the night with her. It could be a different guy every night. It can be two guys, it can, whatever she's into. Wow, feng and- shui what's that a very feng shui yeah yeah, exactly uh the only rule is he can't stay for breakfast even better i know perfect come on just you know get the fuck out of here uh so so then the question is well what happens when she gets pregnant right Mm -hmm. the guy the biological father is a non-issue doesn't matter babies are raised by the mother her sisters and her brothers Right. So that's the family structure. The biological father doesn't matter who it was. Has no role in the kid's life. Is not expected to contribute anything. You know, it's just a non-issue.
0: Well, it's interesting too. And I wonder what you think about, like, having listened to you and Aubrey um, sort of... And, and when Aubrey was on my pod, he sort of talked about his relationship and that it's polyamorous and whatnot. And, and I... And I heard a lot of this, and then, you know, I had a kid three months ago, right. and it so, like, significantly, in a weird way, shifted my view on parenthood and all these things. Bet, yeah. And so I wonder, like, for Aubrey— kid,
1: by the way. I saw he— Thanks. On your Instagram, the picture of you two together is beautiful. He's,
0: oh, he's, I like him. I'm yeah. a fan of his. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: like, do you contemplate that about, like, how having a child would shift the way you look at this stuff?
1: Well, I've never had a child, so, and I never will, so I don't know how, uh, you know, it's all conjecture. Um, but the thing about Sex at Dawn is that it's an analysis of evidence, it's a popular science book. So it doesn't really matter how I feel or sure. how my feelings change. And this is why, like, I never talk about um, the nature of my marriage or my personal relationships because i never wanted to be seen as an advocate for any particular approach to these things you know um the book is just saying this is my in my opinion this is what kind of species we are do with that what you will right yeah um and again i think having a child is no it's one of these things that's no doubt obviously very biological but also very much culturally mitigated right Mm -hmm. so as a jewish american 21st century man with your cluster of personal experiences having a child is gonna have a very specific significance to you that would be totally different if you were a hunter-gatherer or in africa or if you were brazilian you know whatever it's even an experience as deep as that is mitigated by culture. You know, some men feel like, Oh, okay. She had a baby. Well, great. You know, but that's not really my, I'm not really involved in that, you know, depending on the culture. Um, so I don't know how, how my personal feelings would change if I had a kid. Um, but it's irrelevant to, uh, a scientific look at homo sapiens, I guess is the way I look at that. I'm just
0: so, I guess I'm so, um, interested in, in, or it's been revealing to me since having the kid. And obviously it's early days, right? So it's very much, uh, and it's my first kid, so it's brand new, but like how, um, my life with, with my wife has become so much more sort of homogenized. Like everything Mm. has just become very close to center and, and, uh, and I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't imagine having like an extra set of humans having opinions on what's going on with us and this this kid because we feel yeah. so connected.
1: Yeah. Well, the, you know, that might change when you get exhausted and you might wish you had some other humans who yeah. were helping out. Well, her mom. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, her mom. Yeah, Good. we've got in-laws and stuff, right. so that's yeah. huge. that's important. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things that I write about in my next book that's coming out in October called Civilized to Death. There's a section in there on child raising children and how the expectations around the nuclear family. Yeah, you know, everyone thinks the nuclear family is like a universal human social construct. It's not. It's totally a Western construct. Really? And so Yeah. So the, in fact, pretty recent Western construct. Uh, so is love, by the way. Like romantic love uh, is a, a recent cultural construct. The way we experience love, the way we experience jealousy, all these things are, are shaped by culture.
0: Yeah, TV, movies, books. It's giving us a really bad sort All that
1: of... fucking Nickelodeon crap <laughs> that came out in the 90s. I'm
0: telling you, I'm part of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm
0: to blame. But it 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 is true. It's always something that I, I try to get across to like you know, women in my life who who aren't in relationships of like this expectation that like, I think who, do you know the guy um, Alain de Botton?
1: Yeah, sure.
0: And, you know, he wrote a lot about Proust and sort of just this whole idea of like, we are such complex individuals within ourselves that we have such a hard time describing what's going on inside that the idea that anyone else could ever understand it is yeah. like a complete fallacy. <clears throat> it it'll, it'll never happen.
1: Yeah yeah i i first heard of him interesting story I was on a plane i was flying from uh London to San Francisco and this is maybe twenty years ago and I was sitting next to this twelve year old girl flying by herself yeah and she was so smart she was just this brilliant little girl and it reminded me of like what Jodie Foster must have been like when she was 12, right? It was that kind of girl. Like yeah. she had opinions and she was f- smart and she was, you know, if I said a word she didn't know, she'd like, what, what is that? What does that mean? And she had a little notebook and she wrote it down and she was just this little brilliant kid. And we were talking about, I guess I was in grad school at the time. And I told her, you know, she asked what I was doing and I explained, you know, human you know sexuality and prehistory and and she's like oh you should read a book called the romantic movement by alain de butin and I was like okay and she'd been writing down all the stuff I said so I wrote down that and I got the book and read it and it was fucking great it's no a really way. good book yeah I love it I often anytime someone mentions him I think of that girl and I wonder where she is now and what her life is like oh my god yeah yeah crazy yeah it, if you hear this little girl <laughs> she's not a little girl anymore she's probably in her 30s at this point
0: if you ever want to come be interviewed in Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> <laughs> I Please. read the
1: book but the romantic movement it was an interesting book too and then I read the Proust how Proust can change your life or Proust, right story how he can change your life I, um yeah interesting I, guy
0: I like I always uh, w- what was revealed to me and with my you know I, I had been in relationships before I met my wife but we met each other young I was 24 mm. and so up until that point like while I'd had a couple year year and a half relationships they weren't of, of any significance. And what was revealing to me in being with my, my wife and early on when we were just dating was that for me, the right person was revealed over time. Mm. That and that spark we talk about, whatever, that was like merely lust and attachment, which was all great because it happened to be my way into the right person. And but inevitably it was through trial and tribulation, someone continuing to show up over time. Where I finally, after two or three years, said to myself, wow, this person has really proved themselves to be right for me. And and I always make the joke of like, it's not, romance is not that notebook moment where you're kissing on the dock in the rain. It's like when you have food poisoning and they take you to urgent care and like they get you Gatorade. Like to mm-hmm. me, that's fucking romance. Yeah. Because it's real. Because yeah. like, when do you need someone more than when you're like shitting yourself And, you know, asking God to, to take it all away. And they're like holding your hair back as you're like vomiting for the 19th time. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. My parents were together. My dad died recently, but they were there. I mean, they were together since they were late teens. And as far as I know, only were with each other their whole lives. And it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's yeah I, I hope I don't ever come across as uh, belittling monogamy or I don't you think know, you do because I mean th- I love my parents and and their the way they live their lives. I really admire and respect and other people as well. so I yeah, I, I'm really sensitive to not coming across as an advocate. Mm. you know I don't the only thing I advocate is uh, honesty and authenticity and you know whatever works within your relationship go with it you know
0: i love what you said about how when certain therapists or 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 couples counselors will, will talk about like well polyamory or whatever version of that like we've never seen it work and you sort of said well yeah but you're only seeing people in trouble <laughs>
1: like, right yeah. you're seeing, you are only seen when it works they don't go to a therapist exactly yeah, yeah.
0: and doctors only see sick people right so uh, yeah i think i believe that it, that it's possible and and if it is happening it's it's with people who are like quietly just you know making it uh, harmonious with their life you know and and yeah. maybe not prophetizing it much
1: right Especially in a society where, you know, you can lose, you can lose custody of your children, right. you know, if you're in an unconventional three-way or four-way relationship. You can certainly lose your job, you know, so there unconventional relationship structures are kind of like being gay in the 40s or 50s, you know, it can, if the word gets out, it can ruin your life. Right. so there's a good reason for people not proselytizing aside from the fact that there's no reason to proselytize it works for you so what good for you shut up you know <laughs> yeah just do what <laughs> like works it, that doesn't mean you got to tell every. it's like religion like if your religion works for you i'm happy for you i don't want to hear about it though like it doesn't mean it's going to work for me you know right um so i think yeah relationships are very much like uh spiritual relationship to to life you know like find what works for you or your community and be happy but that doesn't mean it's gonna apply to anyone else necessarily
0: it's interesting for in my own experience right and as i said like i'm sober 11 years and i was this big fat kid till i was like 18 or 19 then i lost 100 pounds but of course i was left with the same head and so then instead of overindulging in sugar i found drugs and alcohol is sort mm-hmm. of my and then i got sober and then you sort of learn if you do any amount of work on yourself sober or not that it you know it doesn't have to present itself in 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 those sort of uh, avenues it can be in sex or spending or smoking or eating or like all the ways in which we sort of uh, anesthetize our feelings mm-hmm. and so for me like being with my wife like sex was sort of this thing that until I, I was married, I thought was like at the forefront of my mind, this major thing that, that, that required a lot of focus and required practicing and doing a lot. And, and I guess like with all these things in my life, like drugs and alcohol and eating, and I guess I've, I've tried to, I've tried to lessen its um, power over me. And to say, like, maybe it's like maybe the fact that my wife only needs it once a week or twice a week is healthier than the fact that I'd love to be doing it multiple times a day. Like, obviously, it's specific to everyone, but I've tried to allow that experience to say, like, maybe I don't need it that much. Maybe this is just like the right and allowing someone else's uh, plan to be right instead of like me feeling at every turn that you know i've got to have it the way i want to have it Mm. right
1: yeah one of my favorite quotes is from uh thoreau who said a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without Mm. i think he was talking about the simplicity of life and and you know he built the cabin in walden and was living out there by himself and I think, you know, he was looking at it from a material perspective, but you could apply it to what you're saying as well. Like needs are limiting. So the fewer needs you have in your life, the freer you are. And certainly if you're in a committed relationship with someone, you don't want to be applying your appetite to him or her. Um, I mean, there's certainly... um, like middle ground and you know sure you know and and things are going to change I imagine you know she's just had a kid you know like she's I don't know how old she is but women's appetite for uh, sex changes a lot through their menstrual cycle and also through their life cycle Um, so 10 years from now you might find yourself on the other side of that where she's like, come on, dude. And you're like, please. Oh, I hope rest. so, Chris. <laughs> let me rest. <laughs> That's amazing. Well,
0: it's good to have goals. <laughs>
1: something to look forward to. Um, yeah, no, women tend to, like, you know, around 40, uh, 40 to 50 can be pretty hectic years for women in terms of eroticism.
0: Um, okay, last question. This mm. is something I ask everyone on the pod.
1: Oh, Okay.
0: What are your one or two Chris Ryan commandments, truths that you have discovered that you would want to impress upon someone else?
1: Oh, see, you're, you're putting me in that advocate position,
0: (laughs) but it doesn't have to be this. It could just be life. You know, it could Um, be get a van and and travel.
1: Well, you know, I, I, as I said, I think that simplicity, there's a lot of freedom in simplicity. Mm -hmm. And I think there's wisdom as in doing what you were talking about where uh, questioning your needs and trying to eliminate as many of them as possible. Mm. Um, that's definitely been a goal in my life. You know, I often, especially now with the whole podcast thing, uh, I've been doing a podcast for five years and uh, a lot of people, a lot of young men contact me looking for advice. And, um, you know, I... I resist being anyone's guru and and one of the my another quote i think about often is um, respect those who seek the truth but flee from those who claim to have found it you know i've i'm a big advocate of doubt and questioning and critical thinking question the premise and i think so often we're kids aren't taught critical thinking in school in america and it's If you understand how to think critically, that's the Swiss Army knife of the mind. You can work your way through anything. And it's essential to question the premise. Don't answer the question that's asked to you. Question the question, Mm. like really get behind it. Um, So, you know, if the question is, um, you know, how can I be successful in life? Well, what do you mean by success? What is success? Don't just accept the premise that success means a big house and lots of money or being famous or, you know, having big muscles or whatever. Like question it. What is success? Mm. Before you start working toward your way towards success, figure out what it is. Don't put your ladder against the wrong wall. I think that's an important thing for young people to think about.
0: Love it. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. This was awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Yeah. That was it. That was Chris Ryan. How good was that? Right? Look, your boy. You know, what am I? um, I'm out here trying to educate the masses. I'm curious. And yeah, sure. I could have Leonardo DiCaprio on. No problem. I got Leo on my favorites. You know what I mean? I'll shoot him a text on WhatsApp right now. But you know what? I'm not about that life. You know what I'm saying? I like to be educated by professors who have doctor before their name. You know, I'm trying to expand my horizons, feed the old brain box. And, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, if you're listening, I'd love to have you on the show. I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, uh, Chris Ryan, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Check out his podcast. Check out his new book. Just check out The Man. Anyway, guys, have an incredible week. Josh loves you. Josh cares about you. And... I hope that keeps you warm in the face of a, of a cold, cold world. You know what I mean? Probably won't. It's pretty empty. We don't know each other that well. But inevitably, if somehow it makes you feel better, well then, isn't that nice? <laughs> All right, guys. Love you. Bye.